house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast studying at the bar for our TOTS exam. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my Napoleon of crime, Chris File. Hello, Chris. I, um, you have not named me appropriately. All of the cats in this episode are to be named the addressing of the cats. You know good and well that I am the stale cold smell of morning. (laughs) I'm, of all the things that like surrounded cats and the hype and the whatever, I'm surprised that there was never an effort to do a bot that would like give you your cat name, your proper jellical name. But I think we imagine the marketing plan for this movie was ill begotten. But I also feel like the <laughs> it's such a convoluted thing the the whole the naming of cats and what how many names a cat must have and one is is typical and and several others are varying degrees of of more and more Byzantine and complicated. Like I feel like it would it would confound a mere bot to uh, to be able to connote a jellical name upon someone. I don't know. I mean, I'm I, I I would much rather run like the faces of the cat in this movie through like uh, nefarious face recognition technology <laughs> and see what happens. Now I'm imagining just like you're scanning the cat faces and then they show up at like the various... CIA is like does not compute does not compute. They show up at like various times throughout history, like in the old guard, where all of a sudden it was just like oh, they were there all along. They were there at Lincoln's assassination. Jellicles. Yeah, exactly. Jellicles, a problem throughout history, and a problem uh, in 2019. A problem for this movie, including how they're like, "What is a jellicle? Let's sing a song about it." Now you know what a jellicle is. I <laughs> a jellicle is a jellicle. I, like it's the most like tautological yeah. thing mm-hmm. ever. It's just like, mm-hmm. well, you would know if you know. So yeah. Uh, if if they wish to be called a jellicle, call them a jellicle. Right. Um, Whatever you want. Whatever they want. Just let the jellicle cats. Do except what they want. according to Tom Hooper, this is about the perils <laughs> of tribalism. So like. It is like, if I think I am a jellicle, 
then I am a Jellicle. But to the Jellicles, it's like, no, you're not one of us. That's true. They are they are the most tribal of cats. It's right, right. It's it's so funny because like I I am one to give a long leash to directors who want to impart some kind of high minded you know fufara or whatever on their film because like whatever that's what that's what filmmakers are supposed to do they're supposed to take it a lot more seriously than the rest of us and that's fine but like. <laughs> That particular one is so easy to latch in on because it's just like, it's really not, even if you take the story of cats as seriously as you want to take it, it's not so much about tribalism as it is about just like that one smelly cat gets bullied the whole movie and finally at the end. Because they used to be an asshole. Right. Is and that then they're the deal? like, guys, I'm not an asshole anymore. And Wait, Isabella uh, used to be an asshole? Yet. I don't, I, I did, I. Don't. Yeah, I thought that's why she was ostracized, because she was the glamour cat. She got all, like, famous and rich and wealthy, and then, like, that fell through. She got all dingy, and in the meantime, they're like, no, we don't like you anymore, girl. And she's trying to get back in with them, and... See? Okay. She Memory is all about, like, I've learned from my ways. I'm a good person now. Touch me, please. I see. I, the way I have interpreted it uh, is that... Grizabella was the glamour cat and was like all like beautiful and famous and whatever. And then like hit a bump in the road. Everybody else who was oh, like, you think they don't like Grizabella because she's ugly now? No, I no, I think they've, <laughs> I think they had sharpened their claws as it were and waited for mm. the moment for Grizabella to like hit a bump in the road. And then all of a sudden it was just like, now we're turning on this bitch. And we did. And then she fell in. Cause the whole thing about in this that they, I'm pretty sure is not in the musical at all. Is they're like, and then she fell in with McCavity, who in this movie is styled as a pimp. Yeah, I don't think that's an. And it's like the implication is just like then she started like turning tricks for McCavity or something. Like there's a whole other <laughs> level of like stuff happening here that I'm just like I don't. Oh, remember so that you at all. think the Jellicles don't like her anymore because they think she's a prostitute? Yes, slut shaming. Cats yes. is about slut shaming. Yes, yes, that's what I feel like. Yes, that is my interpretation. Okay. Just in the film, in the Family in the in stage production, it's a lot more um, uh, non-concrete. There's a lot more left to interpretation, which I think is probably better for something like Cats that you leave it, especially as it you know famously is based on a book of T. S. Eliot poems that are just sort of like little larks or whatever. And then Andrew Lloyd Webber, who also decided to take this material probably more seriously than it needed to be. Um, but we'll we'll get into the whole thing. I want to get to your sort of like historical experience of cats, like when you sort of first became aware of cats, because like this was a thing where I remember being aware of the stage production of cats from a very young age, despite the fact that I didn't grow up in New York City uh, and I didn't grow up with like an awareness of Broadway as a thing. But we would get, uh, we had in Buffalo, where I grew up, uh, WPIX, which is a New York City television station. We would get that station because it was like whatever. It was like a super station like uh, TBS used to be. And we would get ads for cats all the time 
all the time, like constantly. It would be like the one thing that I remember uh, seeing theater ads for was cats. And you remember the the logo. With Did the... you see the costumes or whatever in the TV ads? Yes. You would see like, okay. you would see the logo Important with like, context. with like the cat eyes and like whatever, like the dancing silhouettes and the cat eyes. But yeah, they would show you like the, the people dressed as cats and the shots from the show. And so I remember just being like incredibly aware of like, there is a thing in New York, a stage production called cats and it's seemingly about cats and it's a little scary and it's a little like sexy <laughs> and i'm like 10 or whatever but like it's the only thing i and the only other stage the only other uh theater ads that i ever got were for phantom up in toronto uh because we would get the canadian mm-hmm. stations too and phantom would play uh was in toronto like all like constantly so yeah those that's what i was aware of uh as theater was those two uh, and I had no idea at the time that they were these, like, maligned Andrew Lloyd Webber things and that, like, theater snobbery was as such that, like, Cats was insanely popular and ran forever. But anybody who, like, really loved theater hated it and had no idea that that was a whole thing. I guess for my origins for Cats was also, like, a touring thing. It came shortly after Phantom had toured here, I believe, for the first time, and it was, like, a huge thing. Phantom was here for a month, whatever. I very famously, very begrudgingly, I still, um, uh, listen, I can hold a grudge, especially if it's not taking me to a certain theater event, um, and I did not get to go to see fandom when I would have been all of six years old or whatever, (laughs) but then Cats came. I knew nothing about Cats except for Andrew Lloyd Webber, and it was, like, a thing, but, like, I never saw a TV ad with costumes, no idea what the show was, just knew that it was Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like, most of my family went, like, when I say that, we had a row of the theater. Oh, wow. And, like, I don't think anybody really knew what we were watching because we were all there. We were all excited. And by the time we left, everyone was like, huh. <laughs> you guys were the huh. Giordanos in the third row from the Elaine Stritch story in, uh, at Liberty about uh, Pal Joey. That she just gave Indeed. that entire family... Uh, tickets to uh, to the show. That was you guys, but it was cats. <laughs> it was. Um, however, I was seated on the aisle, not knowing what the hell the show <laughs> was, but still excited. Nice. Hadn't seen, like, if I saw a TV ad, it might have had, like, a melody with, like, the logo on it, but I definitely didn't see, like, I, di- I had no idea what the vibe was. Right. Didn't know about the costumes. Right. Like, whatever. So, like, the the overture is playing... And all of a sudden, I have a cat in my face uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> on the aisle. One of the cat performers with, like, glowing eyes. Because I think, like, they come out with, like, a thing on their face. And, like, was in my face, me, a child. Oh. And I just was like, what the I fuck? I love it. And then I think I blacked out for the rest of the show. <laughs> you missed. Because I don't really you missed have. missed the Jellicle Ball. I did. I I think it was just like maybe they blew some drugs in my face or something, but like I don't remember the experience of watching cats. I just remember oh, my, God. my family kind of silently leaving the theater when it was over. <laughs> just filing out, uh, processing what they had experienced. Indeed. Um but then like two or so years later, 
is when Cats becomes available on home video, the one that they produce for the BBC. Right. It's just a recording of the show. Right. So, like, then I watched that, and I was like, this is not good. <laughs> um, but I don't remember 75% of what I'm watching. Right. And I think partly that is, like, my entrance into musical theater was, like, much more plotty right. Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals or, like, Little Shop of Horrors where, like, these right. things move along. And Cats, which, like, is something that the non-theater people who have shit on this movie, I think, didn't understand going into it. It's truly just a bunch of songs about cats. Right. Cats! It's about cats! Singing cats! You'll love it! Like, right. this cat It's like nine intro numbers and then song. it's done. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And the movie does, I think really poorly, does this thing of introducing this character so you can kind of go on a journey with Victoria than like. Yes. Yes, Victoria, played by Francesca Howard, or Hayward, sorry. Um, And it, like, the thing about going to see Cats as a stage show is like, this is all for you. Right, right. Like, the cats are speaking to you. Right. They are dressing you. Right. And it's like, it's it's this weird alchemy that when they introduce this character, you think that it makes it more palatable, but it actually makes it weirder. Yeah, it actually alienates the audience more, which it yeah. seems like the opposite of what they want to do they seem to want to engage the audience in more of a story which is also why so many of the songs that as you say in the stage production are addressed directly to the audience are or like are one cat singing telling the audience about this other cat like uh mm-hmm. Mistopheles is sung by actually Rum Dum Tugger to the audience to tell you about Mistopheles and like in the movie a lot of those songs and a lot of those lyrics are become first person. So Mistopheles is singing about himself. And um, uh, like uh, uh, Jenny Any Dots or whatever um, is, well, that one is more what the stage production is. But you know, you see what I mean, right? Where it's just like it becomes uh, them interacting with their own, you know, story and we are observing the story. But yeah. A big thing, a big problem with that is, is that the Victoria character is so thin and, like, from a plot perspective, it's just, like, there's nothing to her. Like, we see at the very beginning, she's just sort of, like, dropped in the alley in a bag or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the movie becomes her, like, journey to belong with this, like, jellical tribe of of cats. But... Mm -hmm. There's no real resistance to that, and there's no real rhyme or reason to why, like, she sort of proceeds through these things. The way that they plot up McCavity, where all of a sudden McCavity becomes this, like, abductor of cats, and it's just, like, has magical uh, disappearing powers and also, like, a purgatory barge and all this sort of stuff. And it's just, like, none of this is making this story more interesting. And if you – this is a sort of, you know, we'll get into digital for technology eventually. But, like, the attempts by this movie to make it more – like quote-unquote realistic are a useless and b (laughs) more alienating like every single choice that hooper seems to make 
is more alienating to the audience. And I still think in its best case, the best case scenario for a Cats movie would turn off 50% of the audience anyway. Yes, probably. It, it Like, Cats has to stay weird, and he tries to make it not weird. And part of yeah. the problem with this movie is the problem with most Tom Hooper movies is, like, it's approached from such a pretentious place. Yeah. Like, it's almost like you can feel him looking down his nose at what Cats is yes. at every single point and, right. like, him telling you what it should be. And... Yeah, like, every time that I'd read, like, he'd had some attachment to Cats, like, he saw it when he was eight years old or whatever, it was like, the movie does not show that you like Cats. The movie shows that you think that, on a conceptual level, Cats is bad. Here's the thing, too. It's like, and I know, like, you, you know, saw it when you were younger and were traumatized by it and whatever, and, and don't think it's very good. I'm very fond of the Cats musical. Having not seen it, until well, I was an adult, right? And just, like, I saw... I didn't even see, like, the London record... Like, the recorded version of the London production until I was right. a full adult. Um, and then when they had the Broadway revival a few years ago, I saw it twice. Um, I only paid for it once, but I saw it twice. Um, and I'm really fond of it. It is what it is, right? I say it all the time. It's not good. Sure. It's not bad. It's cats. It's ridiculous, but in a way that I really appreciate. And I think a lot of the songs are actually really like tuneful to my ear. And the story is, of course, ridiculous and barely there, but I'm very fond of it. And I think the thing is, I think if there's anyone who's primed to like cats the stage musical, it is you, Joseph. I love dancing. Reed. Yes. Yeah. Because that really is, like, it has these, like, tuneful songs. Some of them are, like, not so tuneful. But, like, the thing about seeing Cats, and part of the reason why I think it was a phenomenon on the stage, is, like, A, the New York City theater, uh, like, business is uh, reliant on tourists. And, like, you can put yes. this show in front of any audience from around the world, and they all understand yes. it at the same degree. Right. But also Cats is, like non-stop dancing yes on the stage and like some of it is really really impressive and like i think the best parts of the movie are when you do get like beautiful dancing even if it's these right. little weird avatar weirdos and a big part of me wants to give the movie credit for being as dance forward as it is i think one of the best parts of the movie and we'll get into this because i do want to rank all the musical numbers uh i think the jellicle ball is that uh, entirely it's just like it does take a moment to just sort of like have this movie loves a fucking overture by the way it really does and um just take a moment to just sort of just like overture the whole the movie's worth of songs and have all the cats dance and i want to give the movie credit for being as unabashed about like we're gonna cast a ballet dancer as our lead role and we're gonna cast you know robbie fairchild and and the the now I'm forgetting the cats who play Mistopheles and Skimbleshanks, but like dancers, <laughs> dancers forward, right? And mm-hmm. I want to give it so much credit for that because that's what I appreciate. I appreciate that the movie has a movie that's that what has. That's you want more screen musicals to do, right? And yet the movie fumbles everything around it so much that it like totally does a disservice to those those dancing scenes. And I like again, as I said, the best version of this movie that had that was as dance forward as the, as this is would turn off American film audiences who, like, 
hate dancing. Like, uh, like, like they just, this is not what American audiences are looking for in films is a 12 minute, uh, you know, ballet sequence or whatever. Of but, people in cat costumes. Right. But it would but have the best version the movie would have been if it would have been intentionally, mindfully weird and just accepting yes. of what it is rather than trying to create some type of reality that is <laughs> yeah. a futile gesture. But like, and we'll let's we'll, we'll do the um, plot description soon because I want to oh get boy. onto the other side and really uh, talk about it. But talk about like the way that the development of this movie was received, and I do feel like there were a lot. It wasn't disingenuousness in the way that the film's production was followed, but there was a lot of unnecessary incredulity in the way that it was followed. I'm I'm thinking specifically of. When the the sort of news, quote unquote, news came around that the cats would be cat sized, and everybody was just like I like like just laughing their asses off and just being just like I that seems so bizarre and it seems so strange and it's just like all it means is that the sets are going to be big, you guys. Like that's what it was yeah. like in the stage show. Just like there was a lot of people who were unfamiliar with what cats actually is. That were just sort of like making a big deal out of things that were not a big deal. And ultimately, there was plenty of stuff in the finished product to, you know, have a good laugh at. Because we all, as a culture, did for a while. And it was fine. But I think there was an unfamiliarity with musical theater from much of people who, A, watch uh, films and, and B, cover films that played into that already had this film being a like all-time punchline disaster before anybody saw any frame of film for it. Yes. Right? I yes. don't know. Well, it, I mean, part of that is like even by people who love theater and even by people who love cats, cats has not never been something that has been taken that seriously right and i right. think we do have a very literalist mindset yes. towards film right now even yes. in like genre film yeah. and like that's been pushed by like photo photorealistic cgi stuff that's yep. been pushed by movies like lord of the rings where it's like we have to create this reality otherwise you won't accept this thing that is fantastical right like yeah. 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 I so think it's like Cats is already at a disadvantage just by being made into a feature film. Right. As is pretty much any movie musical, which is why the way we respond to movie musicals every year feels like, oh, we're doing this again. We're all of a sudden, we're like, anytime anybody is singing on screen, we're just going to react with the same. This is why I always have this very ambivalent reaction to the rowdy screenings which i do feel like i'm glad that people were having fun with cats finally because at least like that's you should be having fun with cats but i remember when i saw this in theater for the first time and it was a few weeks into the run when like the rowdy screenings that happened organically became a thing that then audiences went into the film trying to replicate on their own which felt Mm -hmm. so effortful to me and so like obnoxious it's different if it's like this is a forum to go wild versus people just like showing up to it, create an unpleasant experience it it touched the same nerve in me 
not to the same degree, but like, remember when Follies, the, the revival of Follies happened a few years ago and, uh, not Follies, um, Pippin, uh, a few years ago with Andrea Martin, uh, had the, the sort of big trapeze number, right? Where she's singing and she's, you know, uh, up on, uh, the trapeze and it's incredibly impressive. And there was early on in that show's run, audiences were spontaneously stopping the show for a standing ovation after that number. And and it was, you know, great. Like, great for Andrea Martin. She totally deserves it. And yet that then became – people heard about that, and then that became the expectation, and it happened in every show. Do you know what I mean? And then it's just mm-hmm. like, okay, well, this is no longer a spontaneous – reaction of delight and and appreciation for this thing it just becomes uh a rote uh uh, it's paces that the audience Uh, is going yeah it's it's a mechanical response because people want to feel like they're a part of something that was an organic experience yes and that was sort of what i felt about my particular rowdy cat screening and also part of it was that they were like they were laughing just whenever people started singing and it's just like no it's a musical this is what happens people sing in right. musicals like that's not what's funny about this um and i always i have more of a problem than i probably should with people not enjoying things correctly like i want people to like something <laughs> but like in the way that i feel like is appropriate to like something i this was my big problem with uh the wolf of wall street i'm just just like no the wrong people are going to like this and i hate that um but anyway i also think that's a bit anyway i'm getting before far we get into the plot description we should say this is our first class of 2019 title we should yeah we've made it now somehow <laughs> Even though it does not feel like uh, a year has gone by. I swear to fucking God, watching this movie, I was like, this movie just came out. Yes. Yes. And yet we are now over a year from uh, its release, and Mm -hmm. we have wanted to... Time uh, is a a vague construct anymore. Time is a jellical Can't believe Pats is a year and a half old. Yeah. So anyway... Yes, our first 2019 movie, so those floodgates have been opened. We're not going to, like, bombard you with 2019 titles, but uh, every once in a while, we'll we'll throw one in there. Yeah. And this one, we'll talk about why this had Oscar buzz. This had very specific Oscar buzz. It's not, I think, from a very early stage, people expected this to be a disaster, so it's not like people had this in their uh, Best Picture Top 10s, but it had... Yes, it had, but there's still, like... The holdover predictions, especially before we saw anything on the movie, people were like, but it's still a musical, even if it's Cats. And it's still Tom Hooper. And there was a cynical thing of just like, even when Tom Hooper makes movies that we think are bad, they still get Oscar nominations. We'll talk about that. There was also Jennifer Hudson returning to a screen musical with like one of, again, one of the like big, like 11 o'clock numbers of the stage. Yep. Yep, exactly. So, uh, yeah, we'll do that that once we get through the plot description. But, Chris, you are in the, uh, some might say unenviable position, I might say enviable position, of giving us a cat's plot description. I will first run down the basics. We are talking this week about the film Cats, directed by Tom Hooper, written by Lee Hall and Tom Hooper, adapted from the stage musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, starring, and I went alphabetical because that's the way the film does it uh, at the end, even though it makes James Corden 
accidentally first build, which I hate. Starring James Yikes. Corden, Laurie Davidson, Judy Dench, Jason Derulo, Idris Elba, Robbie Fairchild, Jennifer Hudson, Ian McKellen, Taylor Swift, Rebel Wilson, Ray Winstone, and introducing uh, Francesca Hayward. This film Always premiered... hilarious to remember Ray Winstone is in this movie. Yes, it surely is. Um, uh, premiered on December 16th, 2019 at the prestigious Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center in New York and then opened wide uh, a few days thereafter. So Chris, let me uh, find my little phone here and prepare for 60 seconds. One second. All right. Ready? Are you ready? Uh, I am. Do, 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 do. Go. Okay, so we meet Victoria, who is a cat who is being dumped off on a city street. Happens that she, like, uh, meets a whole group of cats. They call themselves the Jellicle, and this is the night of their Jellicle ball, where one of them gets to ascend into the heavens and be reborn as a cat of better circumstance. Um, anyway, we get to meet all of these cats. They sing songs about themselves to introduce them to her. Um, and meanwhile, there's a villainous cat named McCavity who is, like, making them disappear from the Jellicle ball and, like, sending them to a boat somewhere. 30 um, seconds. That's because he wants to win... Um, and by doing so, his strategy is just to eliminate all the other cats. Anyway, there's also Grizabella, who used to be, like, super, like, beautiful and famous. Uh, they ostracize her, but she's, like, lurking on the fringes. Anyway, towards the end, they uh, McCavity steals away old Deuteronomy, their, like, leader who gets to make the Jellicle choice. Uh, Mistopheles seconds. brings her back anyway, and then Grizabella's, like, touch me, touch all the skin, honey. Um, <laughs> and they decide she gets the Jellicle choice. Well and Victoria done. gets to stay with the cats. And that is time. I find it embarrassing that the best 60-second plot description I have ever done is for cats. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very impressed. Like It's shameful, really. No, no. It is very impressive. Because honestly, like, this is, uh, there's fantastic capsulization in the plot of this. Okay, so what... What would you like to talk about first? The digital fur technology or the reasons why uh, a musical like Cats would have Oscar buzz going in? Your choice. I mean, all musicals have Oscar buzz for the most part, unless it's like, a, I mean, I don't want to say original musicals don't, but if there is prestige that can be carried over from the stage it's yes. just like play adaptations have it too right like it's it's lazy thinking but it it's it's still there i mean i think once chicago won best picture so uh, definitively in 2002 mm-hmm. tons of nominations uh acting wins Almost lots 200 of million dollars in box office right right it was just such a success at every level that then that uh, that expectation and Chicago had been a long running musical, even now more long running. The revival is now even more long running, but like, uh, and a, a project that had been they had been trying to make into a movie for a very long time. And I think the success of that then opened the gates and sort of uh, greased the wheels for a lot of other uh, long in development uh, movie musical projects. And almost all of them, I think we talked about this maybe when we did Hairspray. Uh, almost all of them end up getting significant Oscar buzz, and a lot of them get nominations or like Golden Globes or whatever. But 
I just sort of like jotted it down. Uh, Chicago in 2002, Phantom of the Opera in 2004, The Producers in 2005, Dreamgirls in 2006, Sweeney Todd and Hairspray in 2007, Mamma Mia in 2008, Nine in 2009, Les Mis in 2012, Into the Woods in 2014, and Cats in 2019. And I think there's probably a few... This Rent Erasure. Oh my god, and I forgot Rent. I'm so sorry. Um... Yeah, Rent is interesting. Uh, I I wanted to bring it up when you mentioned about why uh, people, the people who appreciate cats and sort of what they appreciate it for. And I think you'll find a lot of people who like Cats, the stage musical, and like, they still know what it is. They still know, like, I think you find far fewer people who like Cats and are like, that's really profound or like that really like um, I have an emotional tie to it. Right. Whereas like it's, I think I differentiate that from rent rent is another hugely successful and landmark stage musical that a lot of people can't stand, but the people who love rent have a deep emotional attachment to it and find a lot of very, like uh, they, they love rent in a different way than people who love cats. Like they're, they I am one of those people. Rent is a foundational text for right, me. Right. Right. This is what I mean. But like both of those, both cats and rent have like a significant number of detractors who maybe don't hate them in the same way, but it's this similar way where it's just like, I think it comes down to just like, guys, it's so dorky. And it's just like, <laughs> yes, yes, but okay. they're great. Okay. But it's also, like, part of the reason why it thrived on Broadway so long is that it's a great show for families because, like, a child watching this show has a completely different experience than we as cynical adults do. I always think about um, Julie Klausner talked about when the revival was happening. She, like, went expecting to go and, like, hate her life during it. But she looks over and sees this little girl, like, living her full life. Yeah. And she starts crying watching this little girl, like, adoring the show and falling in love love with falling in love with musical theater and all this and that's what cats is and like that i think is the primary failure of the movie because tom hooper you would tell that story to tom hooper and i think it would just be like stone-faced right like right. he turns it into this whole pretentious thing it, it like back to that perils of tribalism like yeah all, all of the like talking points about this movie you can absolutely do in amy adams london banking connections voice <laughs> the perils of tribalism where it's like every i think every like decision that he makes with this movie kind of takes it away yes from what it is in its purest form yes to and when you do that it if Instead of becoming, you know, it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, it becomes something laughable. Like, the funniest stuff in this movie to me is the things that it's just like, he is taking this too seriously. (laughs) Right. Well, and also, and the moments that are are more whimsical are are handled so, uh, like, ham-fistedly. I'm thinking of, like... uh, uh, old Gumby Cat number, the Jenny Any Dots number, or mm-hmm. Buster for Jones. The, the two big tugger the, number. The two big sort of like comedic set pieces, right? And that's why you cast Rebel Wilson and James Corden and stuff like that. And it's just like, but it's so the tone is so unbalanced and so often it's so uh grotesque and not fun and not enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And those two performers, well, Rebel Wilson, first of all is not a musical performer and should not have been cast just because she's 
ostensibly funny. And James Corden is a a musical performer, and I think his performance with a better surrounding production probably would have worked fine. Um, but I think the two, and also the fact that those two numbers come so close to each other, it's those two bookend, I think, mm-hmm. the Rum Tum Tugger number, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and with Derulo- the exception of Jason Derulo and Jennifer Hudson, like the most famous people in this movie get maybe the worst numbers. Um, well, I think Ian McKellen that, acquits himself quite Ian well. Ian McKellen is actually good in this movie. Yes, yes. Um, so maybe that's not fair. Maybe what I should say is the worst numbers in this show are at the beginning. Of the I was going to say, this really front loads... Tiresome. Yes, it front loads its worst aspects in a really aggressive way. But the other problem that I have with this... This is not... I don't think Tom Hooper is going for, and I don't think he would think he's going for something that is, you know, the proverbial grim and dark or whatever. And yet the production design of this is so alienating and it's like colors and hues and sort of this like weird, like purple glowiness that I find really uh, off-putting, which also actually, and I I didn't mention when I ran down the musicals, uh, The Prom 2020, but it has a similar sort of like glowy purple uh, color palette to The Prom, which I also didn't find very appealing. Gemtones has appealing. when it's really just kind of like... Ooh. Yeah, it, it feels that, music that, video-ish. Like, memed uh, photo of Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049, where it's like, that scene realizes that this color palette is, like, queasy for an audience. Right, and it's smart enough to not keep it throughout the entire movie. The only film that has ever done uh, uh, gem tones uh, correctly is Hustlers, and I will stand by that. Um, yes. Uh, and also that movie also doesn't knows enough to not do it throughout the entire movie. Um, this film is not that. And, but also like, I think the digital fur thing is the same thing where it's just like the intention seems to be to, uh, make everything seem more quote unquote, like realistic. They need to look more like cats. That's the whole story. Uh, that daily beast article about the, the poor VFX people who were terrorized in this film. Working 90 hour weeks when like uh, Tom Hooper would berate them on zoom or Skype or whatever. And all I'm imagining is just like, I'm imagining like it's the Bruno Gans downfall clip, but it's Tom Hooper just being like more like cats, more, more, more. Give them a bottle. (laughs) Right. And like, but like that doesn't make the audience feel better. Like that's like you look at the stage production, and again, I think the laziest criticism of a movie musical is it should have been more like the stage production. And yet, I'm going to be saying that because like you look at what they did in the stage production, where it was just like it's elaborate makeup. I read a really interesting oral history of the Broadway production of Cats that was on Vulture last year in the lead up to the movie um, that talked about just how elaborate the makeup was and how sort of daunting the, the, you know, the costuming and the makeup and having to sort of like wear all of this makeup and you're dancing constantly. So you're sweating constantly. Sweating it off. And all of this. But like, but if you look at the stage production, it's a lot, it's extra as fuck, but it's, it's an aesthetic. It's a real aesthetic Mm -hmm. and they don't look like, your cat that you've got in your living room, right? They don't look like that, but you like, but they're cats. They're, you know, what the stage show well, needs to It presents cats. like a cohesive world where all of the pieces are kind of working together so that when you sit down in front of this thing, 
you, I mean, you probably don't buy it, but like, right. you are seeing a complete vision, right? Whereas this feels like it's chasing pieces of different aesthetics from other movies. Old Deuteronomy in the stage production looks like if you took a particularly heavy shag carpet and just draped it over him. Like he's walking around <laughs> with just like a full shaggy like carpet mumu the entire production because Old Deuteronomy is the only cat who doesn't need to dance. Everybody else is in like skin tight bodysuits and you know makeup whiskers and like that's also <laughs> fine. And Judy Dench's old Deuteronomy. <laughs> Every time you say that, wearing... it does sound like a hate crime. I will not lie. Like, it does sound okay, accidentally. Okay, then we'll call her Dencheronomy. Okay. Um, uh, Dencheronomy has a fur coat on. <laughs> so it looks like this is the coat of the of the cat that went to the Heaviside lair last year. Like, <laughs> right. she is wearing another cat. I right. have so many questions. That's also is the styling this... of Grizabella, too, which on the stage is, like, Grizabella's whole thing is that she looks like she's wearing a ratty fur coat on the stage. And in this, it's, like, that is present, but it's also on top of this, like, digital fur. So it's... Who did it... she kill? <laughs> Wait, who did who kill? Oh, who did Grizabella kill? Both too? of them, I guess. Yeah. They're wearing fur coats. Yeah, well, fur is murder, so, you know. Um, yeah. No one would believe that more than uh, the Jellicle cats. So... Yeah, I think the and digital fur technology became such a punchline, and I think that deservedly so because it sounds and London banking connections, digital fur technology. Yeah, I'm saying it's just like it sounds so ridiculous, but also it just it wasn't necessary in this. Like, just because you can CGI fur onto humans to make them uh, look like weird, glowy, fuzzy monsters, like, doesn't mean you should. Uh, it's it's like people don't realize there's a reason that the first avatar movie (laughs) was in post-production for like two and a half years maybe it was longer but like to get that level of photo real cgi you can't just like do that overnight you have to have thousands of people working for a long time and like they shot this movie a year before it opened the story is they spent like six months working just on the trailer and then had four months for the rest of the movie, which yes. Yes. feels like is probably twisting a truth, but we'll, we'll take that as gospel. Um, but that the visual effects were not finished until like hours before the premiere. And then they had to later pull those prints and replace them with better corrected VFX. Like it was, it's, it's amazing that a major studio production would release unfinished this way like i do wonder if this will impact like i I can't i don't know what tom hooper has in on the horizon i'm sure he probably does because he's you know seems to be teflon about all this sort of stuff but i can't imagine a studio wanting to sign up for the next tom hooper movie i mean not something that's going to be a large budget and probably not a musical Thank God. Oh, ever again. Um, Never again. Yeah. I mean, the the visual effects problems that happened with the print that was released, it was things like uh, dancers, like, clearly appearing like their feet aren't on the floor. Right. When they're supposed to just be standing there. Right. Judy Dench's human hand with a wedding ring showing up in the final number, which, by the way, 
they didn't fix that or they put the wrong version on HBO because I watched it on HBO. That's her whole ass human hand with a human ring on it. Yeah. Judy Dench is an interesting story in this. Judy Dench, uh, which I didn't realize until I looked into this, I must have missed this little tidbit uh, during the run up to the movie, but that she had originally been cast in the the London stage production, the original London stage production of Cats. She was going to play, I think they said a, the the dual role of Grizabella and Jenny Anydots, and that she uh, injured her Achilles tendon, which is not a pleasant injury from what I am given to oh, understand, um, right before, and she was replaced by uh, Elaine Page, who then sort of got famous from uh, from playing Grizabella, or at least like, I don't know, I don't know British fame, again, don't correct me, British people, stop it. Um, um, but whatever, Elaine Page... Uh, got a huge career boost from cats yeah elaine page is like the uk lady of the stage yeah so um casting for after chess it should be chess in my book see i knew i knew i knew i would get it wrong fine fine no i don't i i don't know i'm asking the question i'm also asking the question because you and i are chess gays i do love chess Another one I came to very, very recently. I didn't really grow up listening to uh, the Chess original cast album. I think... uh, Chess doing I Know Him So Well at karaoke. That is a thing again. Oh, God, if we can ever get allowed to leave our homes again. Um, Yeah, would totally do that. But uh, yeah, Andrew Lloyd Webber is interesting in that way in terms of just like... I know Andrew Lloyd Webber wasn't Chess, but like... um, People who sort of like, oh, I grew up with X and Y. I grew up listening to uh, the Phantom, or at least like when I was in like junior high, because that was our the eighth grade trip was we went up to Toronto to see Phantom. I know a lot of people who were like, oh, I grew up with the Jesus Christ Superstar album, or uh, like you had gone to see Cats when you were very younger, and that is a thing that I think people come to people like Stephen Sondheim uh, when they're older and when they're more, you know. Uh, more mature and have more refined tastes and yada 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 um but andrew lloyd weber feels like level one for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and like and there is a bombast to his stuff that i do i cannot deny that i do find appealing in certain contexts in a lot of contexts and that's why i'm you know a dork for for a lot of aspects of cats and a lot of the musical <laughs> numbers in cats, which I do agree that like there's, there's the quality, you know, uh, varies wildly, but I wanted to, I texted you two days ago and I was like, be prepared to rank the musical numbers in this film because I wanted to like get to some of them definitely work better than others. Not even the best of them don't like ever really reach like the heights, the heights of like greatness, but like, there's a couple there's at least a couple things that are really good in this and then there are a few that are so bad and make me so angry partially because their stage equivalents are pretty good. I think there's at least one number in this that I hated so much in the film that I really found kind of delightful <laughs> on the stage. So I ranked so I ranked everything I ranked one through like seventeen. I I included even like the little like small little like interstitials or whatever. Even if I didn't like, I sort of lumped my numbered nine through twelve are just like a lump of sort of like the the smaller the bad songs. Right. Most of them at the beginning of the musical. Um, but then I have like my bottom uh five and then my top eight. 
And I don't know, how many did you rank? when uh, We can do a top eight. Okay, I'll just go through then my, like, what's at the bottom of mine, and we'll clear that to, to try this out. So, number 17, the last one, the old Gumby Cat, the Jenny Any Dots number, which Rebel Wilson I find so obnoxious in this. And I don't always feel that way. I do, I get why, why she has an appeal to certain people and projects, and, like, she's been good in things. But... I just find her incredibly off-putting in this. And also, she can neither sing nor dance. So, what are we doing? The thing is, like, Kat does have to be earnest, and there's something about her performance that does feel cynical. Like, she's looking down her nose at what she's doing. Yeah, she's barely making an effort. Yeah. I hate it. Um, Number 16, Mungo Jerry and Rumpelteaser, which I find really delightful on stage it's sort of playful and whatever and it's you know it's not much of a song but it's like it's it's like fun and for whatever reason the arrangement in the film is tuneless and they cast great dancers i'm sure but like why i get why you cast a name person who can't sing like rebel wilson why don't rum rumble teaser and mungo jerry sing in this film, like they're talk singing throughout this entire thing as if they were like A-listers who they cast for their like marquee value. I don't understand. Okay, but that is a number that uh, uh, I was going to like maybe save this for more like analysis for the film, even though we're talking about uh, no. thing of the movie. Go we're talking it. about the worst numbers at, uh, at this point in this conversation. Yes. And I think this movie would be vastly improved if you cut Rebel Wilson's James Corden and this number. And I realize especially Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser is probably cutting that is probably sacrilege to some of the purists for cats. But like, first of all, this movie is two hours long and that is a huge ask of an audience <laughs> yeah. for this musical yeah. in the way that it's done for it to be two hours long. Um, but like, this the Mungo Jerry and Rumble teaser number in this movie is like when you hear people laughing about just the kind of insanity and like scale of this movie, it's it's like the one for me, even more so than Rebel Wilson and her cockroaches. Yeah, no, I because it's like the scale is never exactly right. Like they say that it is, it and... fluctuates. It definitely fluctuates. It fluctuates in this number. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, yes. you're right to say that it's tuneless. It's not really... I mean, I'm sure they're fantastic dancers, but, like, not even really compelling performances. They're mostly two. just jumping from one thing to another thing. You're right. It's not like they ever, like, break out it's into, like, piece. dance. Yeah. And as narratively, where it's supposed to seemingly, like bring Victoria further into, like, the mischief of cats, but also she's, like, taking this, like, momentary sojourn into, uh, like, she's getting into trouble, right? With the troublemaker cats. They, that's, yes. their, that's the whole thing. And, and Mistopheles ends up, like, rescuing her at the end of it. But it's just, like, it all feels like a giant waste of time. And in a, in a film where each song is sort of hermetically sealed off from the other ones, there's a real danger of certain musical numbers feeling like a waste of time. And this one more so than almost any of the other ones. Mungo Jerry and Rumple teaser. There is no photo because you don't deserve a photo. <laughs> so 15 is Buster for Jones, which it's again, I think in a better production, I can see why you would cast Corden for this. He does seem to have 
he is too much it's too much of a winky energy for cats like you really do have to be a true believer but like he can at least sing he is at least like I mean, Buster Jones is an asshole, so he's right. appropriately cast. Right, that's the thing. And but also, it's just it's just a weak number. It's just too obnoxious. It's not fun, and it's also like the whole joke of Buster Jones is just like he's fat. It's just like great. So we've managed to in this world of like you know uh, feline utopia or whatever uh, manage <laughs> to fat still still making fat jokes and great. To, Justice for Buster for Jones. You can eat whatever you want, my darling. Um, number 14, again, continuing with the front-loading of the worst numbers. The Rum Tum Tugger in this, I just don't... Like, Derulo can't match the charisma you need for this character. He just can't. I feel bad for him because, like, he sounds great, but, like, he is kind of miscast for it. Yeah. I guess there's something... I don't want to say, like, iconic, but, like, there's a certain level of, like, the Terrence Mann... Yeah. of the original casting or at least the original Broadway casting right. that like stuck with the production forever yes and like his his rum tum tugger is more like sly than yeah. this kind of larger than life sex character yeah it's super cheesy in the Terrence Mann version of it but like it works like that's what you sort of you know it also felt like low energy Com- comparatively yeah. to what you need from that number, and I didn't like it. My number 13 is Jellicle Songs for Jellicle Cats, and if you know me at all, you know how insane it is. I love Jellicle Songs for Jellicle Cats so much. It's maybe my favorite song from the stage production. It's, it is so weird and so, like the the way it like moves into like operatic like uh it's like moments spooky and- it's trying to make it spooky but like not scary this is this is something that like uh, i feel like i'm still jumping ahead but like this is a perfect number to mention it and then there's another one i want to mention it for tom hooper's like pretentiousness i keep saying that word but like that's it's appropriate. how i feel about it yeah the way that he approaches this even affects the score of it to where it's like this huge brassy opening number becomes like a mood piece. Right. Instead of like this rousing, right. like get the show started. It's kind such of a halting way to in, in, uh, invite the audience into the show. It like there it's is barely melodic. It, there's no hook to it. You gotta hook the audience for fuck's sake! Like, they're you gotta do it's it. You gotta do the work. Horribly, it's like, sh- it's shot horribly. You have uh, Robbie Fairchild, who like is a talented performer playing uh, Monku Strap. Like, let him go. Let him do it instead of just this weird, like, you know, whispery. Yeah, yeah. It's the two other numbers that I really think are affected by this are actually Memory and uh, Mr. Mistopheles. Yeah. But we'll get into that. Right. So my 9 through 12, this is where I sort of jumbled together the naming of cats, uh, Grizabella the Glamour Cat, uh, Growl Tiger's Last Stand, which in the stage production is a whole fucking thing. And I'm really glad they at least cut that part out because it takes for fucking ever. And uh, whatever. That normally is part of uh, of Gus's whole thing. But they intent instead they just gave it to menacing Ray Winstone on the barge and like it lasts for half a second and whatever. Grow tiger. 
I'm a Bravo can. I'll travel along the pouch. And then the introduction to Old Deuteronomy, which is like fine. Like it's it's not much of anything. Okay. So top eight. What is your eight? Okay, so I did my ranking based off of the songs themselves, not how they're done in the movie. Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's hear. Uh, my number eight is the addressing of the cats, <laughs> the final number, which like does have these beautiful like melodies and harmonies. It is absolutely unwell in the movie because that thing we mentioned earlier of how instead of having a direct address to the audience, they invent this Victoria character. And then all of a sudden for this last number, they decide to break it. And like Judy Dench is making eye contact with you <laughs> in a way that feels so insane. All right. Put a pin in that. We'll get to that in a second. Um, okay. I ranked it higher. But I ranked number, it higher. I think it's, it's, a, it's a great number. Anyway. My number eight is Beautiful Ghosts, which... I have a softer spot for it than I probably should. It gets stuck in my head. I am still kind of like humming Beautiful Ghosts a couple days after watching it uh, once again. It's it's the only moment... I don't know what that song is about. I know what's supposed to be communicated in the scene, but like just on a song level, what is that song about? It's about I got thrown out in a bag, and now I want to uh, hang with you, you cats. But at least we'll have beautiful ghosts. What? It's just it's it's her it's her mirror version. Like of memory, I don't have memories, of. but like yeah. the things I remember are nice. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's you're the right. Weirdest song. You're right. I, that's why it's not higher on my list. But I'm just saying <laughs> I cannot deny that. Uh, the the song itself burrows into me, and if it had gotten an Oscar nomination for Taylor Swift, I wouldn't have been mad at it. Is what I will say. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do this episode if that had happened. Francesca Hayward at least gets to sing. Yes, and it's like if they're gonna get this character, make this character essentially be the lead of it, right. she gets to sing. Right. But it's also <laughs> this is where Denturonomy is watching her. <laughs> do this and it's like oh i guess she's nice that's going to be her jellical trait because later she tells her you are a jellical cat and it's because (laughs) she's nice to grisabella right no the morality the the moral structure of this film is uh tenuous at best we'll say all right what is your number seven i said the jellical ball there's no lyrics they just dance it's great it's great it's higher on my list it's great we'll get to it Um, my number seven is McCavity, which I think for the most part is really good. I actually think Taylor Swift does a really good job. It is a a number in the show that is performed by two different cats. I think it's, it's Bombelli Arena and someone else, whatever. Like, I can't remember all the other names of cats. The other one might honestly be Victoria in the show. Who knows? Um, It's, uh, it's higher on the list for me. Uh, I think the thing that puts it lower on the list for me, and we'll I'll wait for, for you to chime in uh, when it's on your list, I don't like when Idris Elba enters into it and sings his own song as McCavity. I like I know that's like me sticking to something about the stage show, but like I think this film weakens itself when these become first person songs. The whole thing about McCavity is that he's mysterious and you're singing about him in hushed tones or whatever. And the movie enters like this 15 minute stretch. That's like, it's finally doing like, it's finally like achieving like what 
like the high ce- what the ceiling of right. this version of the movie can be where it's like the Jellicle Ball is great Skimble Shanks is great and then this is great and it's literally Idris Elba bringing it back to yes. what the movie is I love Idris Elba but you are right in that when he shows up it sours the number it it's a little bit like when the jock was in high school shows next to like yeah, the theater girl who's good at it. Also, sidebar, very briefly, I want to just have a word, a strongly uh, delivered word, with whoever decided that McCavity's magical like phrase needed to be ineffable. Why? Why? <laughs> Who made that decision and why? Just tell I believe me why. it's probably T. S. Eliot. Take it up with him. No, like, ineffable is a lyric in this, but, like, there wasn't anything originally about, like, A, McCavity having, like, a, a abracadabra word and then having it become ineffable. Like, I don't understand. All right, anyway. I mean, I think the lyrics are based off the T.S. Eliot poem. The, lyrics, anyway. the lyrics are, but this particular element was introduced just for the movie, I'm pretty sure. The fact that he has, like, magic powder. The thing about Taylor Swift in this movie is it felt like her being announced for it was one of the things people were originally, like, turning their nose at or laughing at or pointing at it being potential fiasco. She's one of the few people who show up in this movie and know exactly the movie that it kind of needs to be. Yeah. All right. What is your number six? Uh, my number six is uh, <laughs> Journey to the Heaviside Lair. Oh! The before the addressing of the cats. I just think it's a really pretty melody. And it's also, like, 19 key changes, so yeah. I can't... Yeah, that's a good point. I respect key changes. I sort of lumped it in with the the um, old Deuteronomy naming of cats, Growl Tiger, all that sort of stuff uh, in the film, because I think it's just very brief and ultimately like three lines, but you're right. The key changes. It's a, it's a very good point. Um, it's also kind of one of the like peak, you know, uh, uh, like crazy moments in the movie because it, Grisabella has been given the Jellica choice and then she becomes an aeronaut. Yes, she does. She's a really good aeronaut. I'm a really good aeronaut. In yeah. this film. All right. My number six is Mr. Mistopheles. Don't belong in balloons. <laughs> okay. So Mr. Mistopheles is number six in your ranking of the movie. Yes. I have thoughts about this. Okay. I love it in the stage production. It's again. As do I. It's in the revival that I saw. It's Rum Tum Tugger singing. And then uh, the, the, actor who played Mistopheles in the stage production that I saw is Ricky Ubeda, who won season nine of So You Think You Can Dance? One of the like later seasons of So You Think You Can Dance, but I loved him so much. And it's just like... He basically it's, is just nonstop uh, pirouetting, yeah. doing like just spins and turns the entire number. <laughs> yeah. It's the, amazing. The problem with the film version of this is the problem that like this movie decides that it needs to A, make Mistopheles uh, more of a character, more of a protagonist in this, who like makes active choices and whatever, Stupid. and like, and and also decides it needs to make this weird bisexual love triangle between Victoria and Mistopheles and Monkustrap, sort of, where like I'm not sure which who Monkustrap wants to fuck 
among Victoria and Mistopheles, <laughs> maybe both of them, but he's like clearly jealous. But also, Monkey Strap's barely a character at all in this. He just sort of like sometimes glowers and then also sometimes sings exposition, and it's really weird. And but like, Mistopheles isn't supposed to be a boyfriend, he's supposed to be a like ma- a magical, mysterious cat who like sort of magic. He- He's a, he's a shaman. magic homosexual cat. Yes, yes, he's a magic homosexual cat. Thank you. And he should be lusting he, after Skimbleshanks, but we'll get to it. Um, no, like, he, uh, again, he doesn't sing for the number on the stage for the most of it. You right. are right about that. But, like, in making him a protagonist of the song, they also make this weird fucking character choice that he has to be, like, not a good magician, also extremely self-doubting. Yeah, so what it he's got to believe in himself. To, to the like melody of the song, it turns like the song that is the quintessential annoying song from Cats because on the stage <laughs> they do the chorus of this song forever, like, eighty-seven forever. times. That and said, though, Chris, um, this that said in the movie, it's so dour and downtrodden because like they're using that melody sung only by him, where he's doubting himself, and right? It is terrible. Thank you, Tom Hooper, for making this so serious. And yet, the the indelible power of the chorus of Mr. Mistopheles is such that in those rowdy screenings, that's sort of how it began, was people started like singing and clapping along to Mr. Mistopheles because they just keep drilling it. They just keep going at it about, oh, well, I never was there ever a cat so clever as magical Mr. Mistopheles. And they say that a thousand times. And... Like, I at least give give it credit for that. All right, what is your number five? Uh, my number five, I chose Old Deuteronomy, which I think is a beautiful melody. It's like this whole, like... It's haunting. It's sort of reverential. It's hushed. I get it. It's just, like... It's repetitive, like most of the score is, but it's like... Sure. It builds to something. I guess. I find it more easy to to sort of brush it aside but i get what you're saying and i appreciate that my number five is the addressing of cats which i find in the movie in the movie which a i think judy dench is really funny in this in this number and i don't think it's accidental i think she knows exactly how insane this is that she's now decided to turn to the audience and also be like mischievous and it's so this is to me where like it's not it's good it's cats come or it's not bad it's not good right. it's just cats. This is a song that reminds you that cats are not dogs. It's so ridiculous. It's the thesis of the song. It's so ridiculous and that yet I find it so uh, delightful <laughs> because of that and and a habitat but how would you address a cat So first your memory I'll jog And say a cat is not a dog So first your memory I'll jog And say a cat is not a dog With cats some say one rule is true. Just the fact that the whole thing crescendos on a line like, 
a cat is not a dog. And then it keeps and it stops and you think you think it's done. And then she just starts talking again and it just keeps going. It's like Return of the King where it's just like, nope, it's another ending. It's just like we're going to keep another ending. And you the thing is, you know, it's got to be the last number because like even if you haven't seen the stage show, you know, it's got to be the last number. And yet you're just like, is that the note they're going to leave it on? Is that the last word of this? And finally, it's just like, how are they going to end this? And then they just like randomly cut to the balloon of uh, of Grizabella because they have no other choice but to do anything else. But I find it like, remember this cat? We flew into the sky. Yeah, I find it uh, so ridiculous as to be utterly delightful. What is your number four? Uh, I chose Jellicle songs for Jellicle cats. So you like well, you're so you're not ranking specifically. I'm, from I'm the basing movie. it off of the songs themselves in the stage version. Okay, I think my my huge disappointment in what the film did to that song like plummeted it down in the rankings. But like, I love this song. I love this song. It's almost like Tom Hooper doesn't understand how musicals work. Uh, yeah. Also, in the uh the perfect version of the song the crescendo that is reached when they decide they just start listing alanis morissette style uh the types of cats the different types mm-hmm. of cats uh skeptical cats dyspeptical cats and such um i did black fly and chardonnay cats i i did the song at karaoke one time and nearly passed out from breath control issues <laughs> of trying to like get all the the cat's uh, out out of out before i i lost all my oxygen I think sometimes if you are not a good singer, which I am not, karaoke becomes a choice of either you're going to do something fun, you're going to fail big in a way that like I think has some charm, or you are going to go for a degree of difficulty points on songs that aren't sometimes not songs. Uh, me, uh, I, I'll do We Didn't Start the Fire and try and do it without looking at the monitor. <laughs> and and try and remember it whole and like that's my like weird little like parlor trick. Queen. So like sometimes karaoke can be a parlor trick and and that's fine. And I think Jellicle songs for Jellicle cats is a really fun karaoke parlor trick if you can try and pull it off. Um, I love that song. All right, what are we at? My number four is Gus the Theater Cat. I think Ian McKellen does a very good job in this film. He has a, I would say one of the more boring songs, and he's probably the best performance in the movie. It's another song where, in the stage version, they're singing about Gus. It's not Gus singing himself, and in this one, it's Gus singing about himself. And it's this is the only time in the film that I think that transition works, where I think it gives McKellen a lot of uh, room to get the audience in, like br- bring the audience in to what his character is and what he's going through. And again. 
there is no character in this film that goes particularly deep, but for that moment that he's singing, I think it's really effective. I agree. All right. What's your number three? Uh, my number three from the score of Cats is Memory. I love it. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a theater standard. It's a theater standard. It's bombastic as hell. It's got a, I love a theater classic that has a big over the top moment, a defying gravity, a, uh, and I'm telling you, I'm not going like something where it's just like, oh, wait till you get to this part, honey. And well, and the actress who plays Grizabella uh, is like on her knees before the big note and like stands as she hits that note. It's it's go it's find on YouTube the Tony Awards performance of Memory from Cats, where Betty Buckley uh, does exactly what Chris just described. She's on her knees and she uh, she stands into the line of "Touch me, it's so easy to leave me." And her voice is, like, it's a siren. It's so impressive coming from this sort of just, like, very, you know, thin Even on shitty YouTube audio, you feel it in your body. Exactly, exactly. That was another thing when I was reading that uh, Vulture um, oral history of the Broadway production. As somebody described uh, hearing Betty uh, hit that note in one of the previews of uh, for for cats and just being like levitating off of the off of the floor and i get it uh it's fantastic my number 3 is the jellicle ball you mentioned it before i love that it's just like it's just overture and dancing and it's that's where the energy that's the one moment in this film where i think the energy matches what it needs to be and the yeah. for whatever reason hooper isn't able to sap it from what it needs to be. And it sells the idea of what the Jellicle Ball is. This was when I, in my notes, watching it this time, I wrote down, is the Jellicle Ball just a house ball for cats? And I think it kind of like <laughs> is in that moment where it's just it's like, a prom. where it's just like all the houses come and they just like, like walk the floor. And it's just like, and each one sort of takes their moment and, and Deuteronomy gives them tens across the board. And it's, you know, a whole thing. I really like it. I really like it. I liked, it might be the one part of the movie that I was more impressed by in the movie than on the stage, or like, I I think shines maybe more, and maybe it's because the rest of the movie is so bad. But, um, yeah, I think it's the movie's one kind of successful moment. What's your number two? Uh, my number two is Mr. Mistopheles. This is what Cat's is to me this like never ending children's melody <laughs> children's nursery rhyme <laughs> sung on a loop to the point where it's like by the by the 60th time they hit that chorus they're just 
fucking screaming it, right? <laughs> yeah. And, like, you feel your grip of reality snapping by the time they hit the 103rd version of the chorus. And then you yourself are a maniacal, shrieking, singing demon yep. singing along to the melody of Mr. Mistopheles. There's a trope in musical theater songs that I'm not nearly uh, studied enough in the genre to, to be able to articulate super well but it's that thing where like you said it's just like it's repetition it's repetition and the um the fervor of the chorus keeps going up and up and up and up and and finally again and then it it's over and then you get one character who then repeats that that couple of lines at a whisper you know what i mean mm-hmm. to really land the gravity of what it means to say Oh well, I never was there ever a cat so clever as magical Mister Mistopheles, and it's and, profound. And Dench does it in this. Oh well, I never was there ever a cat so clever as magical Mister Mistopheles. And it's so funny to me, <laughs> like the way it's just like, it's so cliched, but it's so the way that like Dench just sort of just like walks right into it. And her, of course, it's Judy Dench, like grand dame of the stage, just like the- Shakespearean theater actor extraordinaire, just like conferring her uh, benediction upon this cat. It's so funny. I find it so funny. Um, That was your number. Indeed funny. Two. That was my number two. All right. My number two is memory. We, we just mentioned it. It's, it's bombastic okay. as hell. It's cliched as hell. But I love it. And in the context of the movie, I do think Jennifer Hudson's vocal lives up to the moment. I have problems with it. Okay. Let's hear it. <laughs> because it, the like studio recording of her version of the song is amazing. It's not the one that's in the movie. This is when the Les Mis Tom Hooper comes out to play, (laughs) where it's like, let me force this person to just sob through a number. I get it. Um, And like, I think it does a huge disservice to the performer. I think it is shot very poorly. It also doesn't pay attention to the text because Victoria goes and touches her and then she does the touch me. Um, Okay, maybe she had an aha moment of, oh, this is what I've been wanting all along. I have experienced this and I need more of this. I need more cats touching me. Um, I love that you gave her an aha moment, just really bringing Oprah into what, like, Oprah could have played old deuteronomy okay after we get through this ranking can we talk about jennifer hudson and who i think should have played yes 
Grisabella. All right, let's get through our number ones. What's your number one? Because I believe we have the same number one. Okay, what's your number one? Both for the score and in the movie. What? It's Skimbleshanks. My number one is Skimbleshanks. Skimbleshanks, the railway cat. That's when I would appear And I'd saunter to the rear I'd been busy in the luggage van Then he gives one flash of Shanks, baby! There's, there's, what a great song. I don't know if it would be... It wouldn't be my number one devoid of the movie. I think in the movie, it absolutely earns the uh, homosexual fervor that it has attracted. It's become like... Best number in the movie. Like gay Twitter's cat song of choice. It's the most energetic number of the movie. It's the one where it, like, the part where they're all tap dancing on the rail is the best instance of a scaling of this movie. Again, it probably doesn't match up to the scale of a number like Mungo Jerry and Rumpelteaser or whatever. But at that point, I don't care because they're all tap dancing on a rail and it sounds cool. And the energy is top notch and the performance is like nails it. It's he can, you know, sing it correctly. And the song is just a burst of energy when we desperately the character it. design is fun. And it, be- it comes right it after like... the Jellicle Ball. So it's just like dancing, dancing, mm-hmm. dancing. And it sort of like lulls you into whatever. And then it's just like, bam, skimble chanks. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like the world of it where it's like it takes place in a real world and they go on a train and then they get off the train. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't think you see them get on the train or get off the train. They're just magically there. They're just there. Um, it, it, it feels like the only number in the movie that transcends Tom Hooper. Yes. Because, like, it is just silly, it is fun, it is just a bright melody that you are not supposed to think about. The Jellicle Ball into Skimbleshanks is the portion of the movie that feels like it's Andy Blankenbuehler's movie. And I much prefer Andy Blankenbuehler's movie, the choreographer who famously... Well, and then it goes into Macavity, which, like, we've said what we've said about Taylor Swift. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Andy Blankenbuehler, who gets a name credit in the trailer for choreography, which is, I've never seen that. And it says from, because they, it's basically because they can put Hamilton on screen in the trailer because he is the choreographer <laughs> of Hamilton, which again, smart, like good on you for, uh, for finding the hook that you needed for that. I, <laughs> we do need to talk about briefly, we've talked a billion times on this podcast about, uh, my experience of watching the Cats trailer for the first time. But, like, I still do love that trailer. I still do feel like that trailer does its able best to sell what could potentially be really fun slash ridiculous about this movie. Right. Anyway. Yeah. So, okay. So talk about who you think should have played Grisabella. Okay. So the thing about Jennifer Hudson, Jennifer Hudson has become – Maybe this is just an actress Twitter thing, but like there is a certain 
Mm, no, I'm going to take that back. It's not just an actress thing. It's a it's a snobby all aroundness thing towards her Oscar that she fully deserves um, for Dreamgirls that she's incredible in. But like, it feels like I. I tend to maybe read too much into things in terms of how people are cast. Uh-huh. But, like, it felt like her casting this was somewhat meta of, yeah. like, love me again. Right. Which, like, is not a fault of hers, but it feels like, again, a cynicism on the part of Tom Hooper. But, like, I also understand, like, she on film got to do one of the biggest songs in musical theater so she gets to do that again here yes i think again that dourness that he has her sing it at doesn't do her any favors um i don't know i mean i think you could have gone fucking crazy in casting grisabella and i have a take on who should have been cast as grisabella i want to hear this i'm very excited i i think it should have been the screen debut of celine dion Oh, you know, there's she's she's there, done yes, that. Yes, I want to talk about this. Okay, okay, okay <laughs> she okay. did this yeah. on a singing competition show in the '80s. She performs "Memory" in full, full costume, and the legend goes she still didn't know English all that well. You so can she kind of tell all the lyrics phonetically. So <laughs> you, she's like, it's the craziness of like it's. It's fucking Celine Dion in a jellical outfit. Um, but her vocal is amazing. But like I would I definitely think Grisabella needs to be someone older than Jennifer Hudson. This um, trend towards casting Grisabella younger and younger. And I know that like Betty Buckley wasn't old when they cast her in, in the Broadway production of Cats. I get it, even though like now I know Betty Buckley's an older actress. But like this trend of casting Grisabella as Nicole Scherzinger, or when I saw it on Broadway the first time, it was Leona Lewis, and that wasn't great. And then I saw um, Mamie Paris, who actually was really, really good, but like, you know, younger, uh, and Jennifer Hudson. It's just like you, the whole point of Grisabella is that she's like way past her prime. Like, she's not. It's just another elderly. point that shows, like, uh, yes, she is way past her prime, and it just shows how much that Tom Hooper really misunderstand misunderstands character her yeah the text of what cats is i don't know i also just think i'm wait 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 no i i want to i want to linger on what you said for a second because i think we need to give it space it's a brilliant idea like celine dion as grisabella is a genuinely like now i won't be able to stop thinking about that and about what, how amazing that would have been. What Celine Dion today would yes. be like as Grisabella. Yes. Because the thing about Grisabella, I think you have, like, you mentioned Betty Buckley wasn't all that old when she played it, but she was already at a certain level of theatrical stature yeah. above what the rest of that ensemble was. That's not saying anything shady towards that original sure. cast, right. but like. Right. Trevor Nunn, when he directed it, he kept her separate from the rest of the ensemble for the reason of, like, building up this resentment towards Grisabella. Yep. Yep. um, In a way that, like, I feel like, to a certain degree, even as an Oscar winner, like, Jennifer Hudson is a peer of a lot of these people. Or, like, it feels like, with the name assemblage of cast members, she doesn't necessarily, like stand out because you do already have legends you have pop stars but like yeah and again this isn't shade to jennifer hudson but it's like 
you kind of want to be able to like take a pause yes. at who is fast as Grizabella. <laughs> a pause. Because cats have paws. Oh God, shut up. <laughs> How fucking dare you. <laughs> anyway, podcast over. Hope you enjoyed Cat's episode. I'm leaving. Um No, I I'm just imagining the like the gag of it all of Celine Dion first like showing up on screen in this. And also it's just like it's the best kind of stunt casting. It plays into what we know of and also like Celine for somebody who has never acted in a film is also indelible in film history because of Titanic anyway. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. just like, so you're actually like, it's actually kind of a really cinematic choice in a way, at least that plays into like big spectacle blockbuster stuff. Isabella's barely in it. And also Celine Dion lives in the pocket in the pocket of weird sincerity that cats also exists in right exactly where it's just like it's very um like and i know that like not everybody from quebec is like this but it's this very sort of like quebecois um uh, like woodland creature i don't know it's just like she exists outside of the world you know what i mean the if world you don't exists. accept celine dion as a weirdo you've either never seen her live right. or you have never watched an interview with her right everything about celine dion's vibe fits perfectly with cats and it would have been oh my god i kind of almost hate that you said that because now i'm just gonna be like oh this version of uh, of cats now exists <laughs> out there in the ether and i'll never the version it. of cats that exists uh, I, this is this is just an episode of me shitting on Tom Hooper um, the whole time. The version of Cats that exists that might have Celine Dion as Grizabella, that might make smarter casting choices, smarter whatever choices, is directed by a homosexual. Yeah. Do you think Rob Marshall would have done a markedly better job with this, this movie? Not to say that I he's mean, the only other choice, but he's the only other, like, it seems he's like... He's the only person get, getting... Um, uh, movies greenlit that are musicals right, with right, them attached. Right, um, right. Uh, I mean, I think I he comes from the theater. I think some of the more like decisions that I think Tom Hooper is looking down his nose, whether he realizes it or not, at what the text is. I don't think you would have things like that. Yeah. So like, it wouldn't be a movie that like pisses me off in that way. Right. Um. But like he I, hasn't I made a, a good musical part of people's since... approach. To... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say I think there's a certain part of people's approach to this that they would have always laughed at it. Yes, regardless. Yes, but like yes. I do think it would have been a more sincere movie, and yeah. in that way, much better. I just I also think though that like Rob Marshall is on such a losing streak. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like yeah. I I keep wanting to have the Rob Marshall who made Chicago. Uh, come back and maybe that was just sort of like a you know all the stars aligned and whatever i also thought though like andrew lloyd webber's had four major films made out of his musicals and the other three that are not cats are all very like norman jewison directed jesus christ superstar and alan parker directed evita although in many ways madonna was in charge of evita um and uh, uh, Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher directed *Phantom of the Opera*, and it's not like those three are like, you know, David Lynch level uh, creative auteurs, but like they all have like they've got pedigrees, right? They've all mm-hmm. direct like in, in strong filmographies and whatever. And 
part of me is like, I'm kind of surprised that Andrew Lloyd Webber, who is like a, an incredibly particular, uh, has, you know, incredibly strong opinions about how his stuff should be done. And also like holds a lot of weight in terms of, uh, clout and influence and money. Um, yeah, never really like, he's talked shit about this movie since Tom Hooper. He has. Um, but I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but I just think it's interesting that like he those that he would have signed off on Tom Hooper. That would he would have signed off on all of these guys. Like all of these guys who like like made well, these movies was, with their I own. I don't visions. know if friends with um Joel Schumacher, but Joel Schumacher was apparently in the works for a while with that movie because um Andrew Lloyd Webber is a big fan of The Lost Boys. Ah. And The Lost Boys is reportedly the movie that got him that job. That's cool. Um do you remember the Kennedy Center Honors presentation to Andrew Lloyd Webber where he's watching it's Sarah Brightman and then joined by Betty Buckley doing memory uh together and oh, yeah. and he's going through like eight bajillion emotions like on his face and his face <laughs> sort of contorting into these weird Play-Doh shapes it's it's both like kind of hilarious and he's also sitting right next to um I believe it's Steven Spielberg and Kate Capshaw like, that's one of the, the great things of the many great things about the Kennedy Center Honors, if you want to go and watch any of them, are that's what ha- what's happening on stage, what's happening with the person who's being honored watching the people on stage, and the people who are next to the person being honored who are the other honorees of that night. So it's like the year that it was Barbara Cook, the one I watch all the time. Um, Meryl is there, and um, the year that... Uh, a heart did Stairway to Heaven for Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin's there, and like I think it's like David Letterman's right next to them or whatever. So like it's this like, um, you know, weird melange of all these people. And during the Obama years, it was always like those people, and then Barack and Michelle Obama. So it was just this amazing like <laughs> series of reactions. And then they cut to the audience itself, which um, I always mention the 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 heart doing Stairway to Heaven when it's just like. Naomi Watts and Stephen Colbert and Debbie Allen and Yo-Yo Ma and Bonnie Raitt and like all these people reacting to things. And it's absolutely, it hits all of my buttons where it's just like performance. Yes. Celebrity watching. Yes. Emotions. Yes. Like it's, it's watch the Andrew Lloyd Webber one though, watching him watch Sarah Brightman and Betty Buckley. It's absolutely amazing. I'll find a link for it and I'll put it on our Tumblr page. Cool. All right. What else do we want to not get out of here without talking about? I know there's like eight bajillion topics but i think we've covered we haven't even mentioned les mis and like we have should at it's least true. we should bring it up because like that is entirely why this movie happened the amount of money that movie made when tom hooper directed it for universal yes basically immediately greenlit this movie yes. it's like the uh the mega version of uh bill conton writes uh Chicago, and then immediately some the producers or other producers ask him, "What other musical would you like to make?" And he says, "The great unmade musical is Dreamgirls." Yeah. and then he gets the job for Dreamgirls. Yes. How much money did Les Mis make globally for Universal? I think it's something close to like three quarters of a billion dollars. Uh, it's a huge. It was a huge financial success. Um, and, like, Les Mis is a musical that probably has as much of a global footprint as any musical, as much as Phantom, right? And like $441 million globally. Yeah. Oh, only 400 So, like, half a billion. 
Why did I remember it making more? Yeah, worldwide way, 441. Yes. That's that's still a huge profit for them. Yeah. So they immediately let him do another musical and he chooses Cats. I think that's also the financial success of that movie is part of the reason why Andrew Lloyd Webber said yes, because we know Andrew Lloyd Webber likes money. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> who wouldn't? <laughs> but I think as someone who thinks that the Les Mis movie is even worse than Cats. Oh, Oh, absolutely. I think it's borderline unwatchable. Um, Interesting. I think all of the decisions that make that a really insufferable screen adaptation of a musical are a lot of the same mistakes that he makes with Cats. But, like, Cats, being what it is, puts it all out on Front Street where you can't really uh, hide behind, you know, melodies that everybody knows, these huge emotions, tragedy, um, costuming. Why did I think you were a big Anne Hathaway in Les Mis deserved that Oscar uh, person? I don't know who I think I would rather pick over Anne Hathaway. I don't think it's her fault that I don't care for that performance. Sure. I just mean, like, borderline unwatchable feels like... uh, I think the movie's borderline unwatchable. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, I haven't seen it since I first saw it, and my excitement in getting to see it, I remember, like, I just got really, really whipped up in uh, a fervor to see that movie, and I was one of the people who really got sold by this idea that they were singing live and maybe that makes me a, a, a rude. Oh, that was such bullshit. That's not true. Like, first of all, it's not true that it was the first musical that ever used live singing. Um, oh, it's just like I mean, patently false. I don't um, know if that's why that worked for me, but yes, go on. But also like you can tell in the moments where they definitely overdub, um, including Anne Hathaway. Um, yeah. But I just feel like every aesthetic choice made in that movie is to the detriment of the performers. I think he, like, kind of hangs them all out to dry. I think, like we mentioned with Memory and uh, Mr. Mistopheles, the kind of, like, creative choices he's making kind of straining the melody of the music for, like, any of its life. The farther away I get from that movie, I remember watching it and I remember being like, oh, I really like this. I really, I'm really impressed by this. And the best thing about the movie is Seyfried. She's great. Oh, that's really interesting. I still don't know. I've never wanted to go back and watch it again. And that probably says something. And also, the farther away I get from even something like Hathaway doing I Dreamed a Dream, where it's just like, oh, like you sacrificed the melody of this movie to give somebody an acting reel and i like i i well at the same time like hanging that actor out to dry and yet that's why she won her oscar so like i you know to whatever degree she was hung out to dry it worked out for her but yeah yeah i don't disagree with you i think if i watched it again i probably would like it a good bit less but for whatever reason i'm coming in hot this episode no i don't i mean lee dion should have played grizzabella i don't think les mis is worse than cats i don't think you're gonna get a whole lot of pushback from hating les mis i think that movie is uh not really regarded super well i think i i generally try not to uh offer up the idea that like i've been duped by a movie that i liked 
Um, that does feel like a movie now, the longer I think about it. I was just like, oh, I was, you know, caught up in wanting to like it so much. Mm-hmm. And and again, maybe I gotta watch it again, and I'll and I'll be like. But I mean, no, like Tom Hooper bad. didn't take hits for that. I mean, he maybe no. took more hits for the Danish Girl. Um, it got a Best Picture nomination. It got you know Hathaway got the Oscar. Like it was Lamez was a success, and got Hugh Jackman his nomination. Right, and I think coming off of he had already won the Oscar for King's Speech, so it's just like the fact that Cats had Oscar buzz long ahead of time, even though it was Cats, and even though people knew what Cats was, is because there's just like that long tail, and he hadn't missed yet, even with Danish Girl, um, for a movie that was like f- like far less acclaimed than even Les Mis was at the moment, uh, still pulled a nomination for Eddie Redmayne and a win for Alicia Vikander. And so it's like, he hadn't missed yet. It's not... It I I still don't think a best picture nomination for Cats was fully realistic, but having it in the conversation wasn't ridiculous. Nor for it stayed for a while in the conversation. Granted, we didn't see the movie until the very last minute, right? Um, Because it wasn't done. (laughs) Well, it was on the Bake Off lists for visual effects. Yeah, and which I don't know how because like you have to show a real to people in the branch in order to like proceed in that Oscar race. But I but, like even beautiful ghost. I don't think made the first bake off round, but who, who, whose votes determine the bake off in VFX? Is it the visual effects artist or is it a panel? Yes. Yes. So if it's the visual effects artists who know, or maybe have heard through the grapevine of what these VFX professionals had to go through on cats, I can see why people would be like, you know what? Like, tip of the hat to these people for pulling off something. You know what I mean? For doing the job. Right. And like, you have to imagine that some of what they're doing at least is pioneering in a way that like, it's not going to look good now, but it might inhibit a certain type of visual effects artistry in the future that does look good or like advances something else that isn't digital for technology. Right. Right. And 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 maybe it's you know like a, just a circling of the wagons around their own community, right. and also and I and think also sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say maybe this is why when we talk about sometimes in the craft categories, uh, most sometimes equals best, and sometimes that is just like the general academy audience not knowing how to differentiate between uh, the specifics of tech accomplishments, but also in the nomination phase of it, it's. Um, you the the appreciation for the craft becomes an appreciation for the work, and so that is where sometimes most where it can seem like overdoing it in the from mm-hmm. the rest of us. Sometimes it's just like it's the people within that craft being like that was a lot of work, and good on you for doing a lot of work. They're also working with a uh not as deep a pool, uh, especially in that category of potential nominees. Totally. But also it stayed in the conversation a long time because a lot of people, me included, thought that Taylor Swift held a really, really strong chance of getting a Best Song nomination. Although 
now that we look at it, she's had a few opportunities to get an Oscar nomination. And it hasn't one, happened. One voice or one choice. What is it? The James Corden, Paul Potts movie? That one. And also she had a Hunger Games song. Um, I think that wasn't eligible. Oh, do you know one of them was and the other one wasn't. Right. She had at least yeah. one that made that made the long list. And this one, Beautiful Ghosts, didn't even make the short list. They had culled it to 15 songs last year um, from this new trend of like, we're going to like populate the list of best original song possibilities halfway full of like songs from documentaries is documentaries animated films that are not nominated in the animated film category right it all feels very much like uh the remainders whatever it's like i'm not saying that like good songs can't come from documentaries but like it's all part and parcel of my whole big problem with the best original song category in general which is we've stopped making popular songs for movies just as a whole, just as a, as a general economy. We do it so rarely, and it's usually, unless it's a song within a musical film or a musical animated film, it's just you're never it's just gonna be something that you've plucked from of from obscurity. And sometimes My good friend, are you trying to suggest that Beautiful Ghosts is a popular song? No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is <laughs> No, because Beautiful Ghosts comes falls into the same line of just, like, it's a song from a musical. But, like, we've stopped making uh, Flashdance What a Feeling. We've stopped making uh, Let the River Run. We've stopped making – you know what I mean? Like, popular songs don't go into movie soundtracks anymore. Well, and, like, honestly, you mentioned The Hunger Games, and I think that's an example of this. I feel like soundtracks have moved so far into they are just – marketing they are just merchandising where it's like you'll sell soundtracks to an album and there'll be hit soundtracks but have no hit songs because it's just like here's just an assemblage of songs that we've put together for fans of the hunger games you know but even when they did that in the 90s because like 90 the 90s every saw every movie pretty much had a soundtrack and they would that was mostly for marketing too but like the reality bites soundtrack at least like made an effort at having a single do you know what i mean the you know the empire records soundtrack made a go at having uh, a lead single and it's just a different it's just a different world now we don't make movies uh, in that way anymore and it's so all of a sudden best original song becomes something where you're just really stretching to find something which is why i i've i'm less hardline about it now than i used to be but like we've had a couple like week years again where maybe i'm ramping it up again this i don't i think it's a category that could be discontinued they never will because it's to be like shallow was not an anomaly right right exactly and now shallow and let it go and whatever like you've still got these like big monster hits but you have to fill out that category with you know the fact that motherless brooklyn had a song on the shortlist last year is should like chill you to your bones you know what i mean it just it, <laughs> i don't care who it is i don't care like what like you know talent involved York, baby. right but just like uh, I, I like let's let's be serious about this kind of stuff like i don't know well, maybe Taylor Swift will be nominated this year, finally. It'll be for her uh, documentary, Miss America. Well, apparently, if it's for a documentary, it can't miss, because Oscars exactly. love fucking songs from documentaries these days. So, I don't know. It's it's They'll never get rid of that category, because it's the only way you can have performances 
on an Oscar telecast is to... Uh, not anymore. Why the hell did Queen open the Oscar telecast oh, the year yeah. of Bohemian Rhapsody? It's a good point. It's a, now they're just like, you know, making all their own dumb rules. So, yeah. So maybe then if they're going to be doing that, then they don't need a Best Original Song category at all. And they can, you know, <laughs> do stunt ensembles instead or something. I don't know. Anyway, what else do we want to say about Cats before we move into our IMDb game? Because we are well into uh, <laughs> the time on this. We're going to have a good long episode this week. Um, Oh, does Jellicle Cat really mean Dear Little Cat? Like I know, like I know. Well, you know, at the end when when that doesn't signify jellicles from regular cats anymore at all. It sure doesn't. But also, I I feel like I remember hearing that somewhere that like uh, jellicle cat is is a weird. You know, like the Brits sure do love their slang, and their slang can just like make something come out of basically anything. And but the fact when when Dench says this at the end of uh, of the addressing of cats and she looks at uh, Victoria and says you are a jellical cat, a dear little cat. And I'm just like, is that what's that supposed to mean? But also like like it's clearly not like we don't include asshole cats in jellical cats <laughs> because there's several of them right. that are not nice cats in this. Right. Um, uh, the low-key We should, bisexual we should maybe love talk triangle. about the alleged uh, butthole cut of the movie. Right, which goes into the VFX of it all. I, that feels like less of a thing than a, just a one-liner. You know what I mean? Like, people talk about, like, oh, is there a butthole cut, butthole cut of cats? That's a, that's a tongue twister, kind of. Um, I don't know if that's much more than just a joke, though, right? I mean, because the visual effects weren't, were so up to the very last minute, I'm sure there's not, like, a version of the entire movie that has the buttholes in it, but there has to, like, maybe someday in the future, there will leak a clip or something of when, I know people have made spoof ones of it, but it's also just because, like, that Daily Beast article you mentioned that talked about the visual effects hell that those team that the team went through and specifically um tom hooper's treatment of them and misunderstanding of how their teams work and his unwillingness to like learn basically i just i, I what i would rather have than the leaked butthole cut of this movie don't say leaked butthole like that like please christopher <laughs> oh, god jesus christ um, good golly You'll never become a jellicle I mean, cat if you keep talking this, like that. This movie is a leaked butthole. Um, Jesus. I, I want leaked audio mm-hmm. from whatever call he was on, whatever meeting he was in with the visual effects team, where he demanded, requested, tried to explain that part of the visual design of these cats would be their sphincter. <laughs> yeah, I just wrote anus. I just want to know... What verbiage, um, what level of tact he had in explaining this as a character. Do you think there was like a a PowerPoint presentation where it was just photos of real cats who have real buttholes? And he's just like, look, cats have buttholes. My cats must have buttholes. He's like, look at it. Look at it. (laughs) Yikes. Well, also, and if that was a decision made early on enough... Did, like, Judy Dench know that uh, old Dencheronomy was going to have their butthole on screen? Okay, this goes into my one thing I wanted to mention, which is to be a fly on the wall 
on uh, Judy Dench and Ian McKellen meeting up for drinks after hours uh, during the production of Cats would be amazing. I just just imagine the conversations that they had just amongst the two of them about making this movie. I I would pay good money to listen in on that. <laughs> just the derision. And then and Tom the told bafflement. me that there would be a butthole. <laughs> Just while they're like slamming shots of uh, of Jack Daniels or something like that, I don't know. Jaeger, sounds fantastic. Yeah, they're doing <laughs> Judy Dench and Ian McKellen <laughs> doing Jaeger bombs uh, after a long day of filming Cats. <laughs> Truly, uh, that's the live action short film I want to see. Um, do we want to talk about in general the like the class of twenty nineteen? I know you mentioned that. Uh, uh, I mean, we wanna- could mention the other uh, titles that are probably open. For well, wait. We did widows. Yeah, widows. Uh, widows so is twenty eighteen. Is our class? Oh, it's twenty eighteen. Yeah. Never mind. Um, yeah. So, God, what even was this year? It's tough to remember, right? Boy erased. Twenty eighteen. That's twenty eighteen. Yeah. Time is such a flat circle. Like, I even thought, especially 2019 is hard to remember because of COVID, honestly, because it feels like it was two months ago, right? Because our lives have been put on pause. I even thought while watching this movie, I was like, you know, what if they had delayed Cats before it was released because of visual effects things? And because of COVID, we had cats hanging over us oh. all this time. Like, we know cats is eventually coming. Holy shit. You've blown my mind for a second time. Could you time. imagine? No. Like, on, and honestly, like, I I feel like we might have needed that in this world. So, okay, now I'm looking at uh, at least lists, movies that played festivals, 2019 stuff. Uh, the aforementioned The Aeronauts. Uh, yes, The Aeronauts. A possibility. Lucy in the Sky, about a very different kind of aeronaut. We saw together. Um, the Goldfinch is definitely going to be one I want to talk about for sure. That might be a cringy one to talk about because of its lead actor. Fine. Yeah. Good point. Um, what else? What else? What else? I'm going through like literally like what played at TIFF um, last year. We could talk about. Wait, did the Lighthouse get a, no- a nomination in anything? Yes, it did. It did. Okay, so we can't talk. Cinematography about nominee. Right. Uh, yeah, there's definitely some stuff that we can uh, that we can get into. The report we could talk about, which actually I think is pretty good. Um, I guess we could do uncut gems, whatever. Waves, waves would be an interesting one to talk about. Anyway, there's some stuff. 2019, the door is open. Lucy in the sky will definitely happen. We will definitely yeah uh, release the diaper cut. <laughs> Jesus Christ. On that note, let's move on to the IMDb game, shall we? <laughs> All right. So the IMDb game, we end each of our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work or Jellicle Balls, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release here as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints and naming of the titles, (laughs) um, whether or not they are dogs... Um, right cats are not dogs write that down everybody who's listening write that down remember it all right uh yeah 
So, Chris, would you like to guess first or give first? How about I guess first this week? Okay, cool. So I went into the filmography of Tom Hooper, and one of the things that he directed, I think the one big TV thing that he directed before the King's Speech that people remember is John Adams, the miniseries for HBO. But he also did another miniseries for HBO before that, which was Elizabeth I, starring uh, Helen Mirren, but it also starred a British actor named Hugh Dancy, who we've talked about uh, on this podcast uh, at least once. He was an evening, maybe for other things. But uh, there's one television show and three films on the known for for Hugh Dancy. Okay, three television shows? No, one television show, three films. Oh, sorry. Um, The television show is Hannibal. Yes, correct. Um, Okay. You mentioned John Adams. I should be nice to Tom Hooper for a second and say I do really like John Adams. Laura Linney has an Emmy, and we can all be thankful, although she has Emmys for other things also. So Yeah. But yes. Hugh Dancy. Hannibal. Hannibal is a great show. Um, what about that movie, Adam? Uh, yes, it is. 2009's yeah. Adam. Hugh Dancy opposite. Adam showed up for somebody else. Was she on Rose Burns, maybe? That would have been wild. Maybe. Um, but he's also the lead of that movie. He doesn't really get first billing all that often. Um, he's the one dude in the Jane Austen book club. So I'm going to say that. That's a good guess, but no strike one. Damn it. Um, uh, okay. What else is he in? That's a movie. Oh, um, uh, he, isn't he the romantic lead of confessions of a shopaholic? I believe you're right, but that is He's also that not movie. correct. He's definitely in that movie, um, opposite Isla Damn Fisher. Damn it. So yeah, so that's two strikes. So you will get your years for your remaining two. They are 2004 and 2011. Neither of those are evening. Oh, 2011, is it uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene? It is Martha Marcy May Marlene, where he plays... Uh, I love that movie. I should have guessed that. Elizabeth Olsen's brother-in-law, married to Sarah Paulson in that movie. Yep. Yep. Okay, so 2004, that's not even Savage Grace. Nope. Um, Where he is the third in a mother-son... Uh, Triangle. Not thruple, yeah. but triad yeah whatever uh okay 2004 trying to even place him i wonder what billing he is is it's got to be a small role uh i believe it's his second build in this one Mm. yeah it's an odd movie but definitely one you've heard of okay um it's actually got a really interesting cast Oh. I've never seen it, it, but I've seen clips of it because there are a couple scenes from it that are like deeply odd, I feel like. Is it British? Yep. Okay. Um, Although the main star isn't in real life. British. Uh, oh, is it Ella Enchanted? It is in fact Ella Enchanted spectacular Anne hathaway look at the poster for ella enchanted is it's Anne hathaway the whole thing is like it's what's like a fake fairy tale kind of a thing right and so it's like Anne hathaway's in the middle and she's like there's a storybook and whatever everything's around her but then it's 
uh, all these like there are like faces on the uh, perimeter of it, and it's Hugh Dancy's one. Vivica A. Fox is some kind of fairy godmother in this. Minnie Driver yes. is on the cover. Perminder Nagra from uh, uh, Bendit Like Beckham, and is this this there's somebody on the poster who looks like Heidi Klum, but I don't think is Heidi Klum, but I can't pick figure out who look at the poster for Ella Enchanted and tell me who the per- the woman Try to Google on that. the left is. No, it is Heidi Klum. Cause she's in that movie. That's fucking <laughs> wild. Go look at the poster. <laughs> I Googled it. I'm looking at it now. That's absolutely Heidi. Thank Klum. you. Okay. Who's in her hand? I can't make Heidi Klum is holding a man. It looks like remember little remember man. those Project Runway posters uh, for the new seasons where she was like making paper she's dolls of out of the designers or whatever. That's what it looks yeah. like. It looks like that. It looks like she's got Kristen Siriano or whatever uh, in her little hand. Designers, your challenge was to design an outfit for the upcoming movie Ella Enchanted. <laughs> I don't know why that wasn't a challenge, actually. Like, that would have... that It would track if that was a challenge. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a Miramax movie, so yeah, yeah. That, that would have absolutely... Now I kind of want to watch this movie. It's only an hour and a half. Why not? Let's start the show. <laughs> okay. All right. Well done. Good job with uh, with the Hugh Dancy. That's a wild kind of known for for Hugh Dancy, I feel like, right? Yeah. Like Though I maybe would have expected, like, more TV, right? Because he's done more than Hannibal. He's not always the lead. He's not which always. Which is why the lead. I didn't even guess Martha Marcy May Marlene, though I'm glad it's there. Yeah, it's a good it's a good performance by him, I think. Uh okay, so uh fortuitous that we would end on an Anne Hathaway movie, because for you, I have selected another previous Tom Hooper performer and Oscar winner and someone who was offered a role in Cats, have to imagine was offered the role of Grisabella. Can't imagine what else it would be. I'm obviously talking about Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway and Hugh Jackman both turned down uh, offers to be in Cats, which I feel like is uh, says says something maybe about Tom Hooper. Who knows? Okay. Anne Hathaway, star of the upcoming, maybe it'll be out by the time this episode airs, pandemic movie <laughs> where she and her oh, husband, God. played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, rob harrods but like half of the movie is shot in zooms i have never been more angry at a trailer it's kind of crazy we've never done anne hathaway uh as an im we haven't all right uh lee has got to be one of them lee is one of them yes i may be getting too optimistic but is rachel getting married one of them rachel getting married is another one good, of them good for you good for you imdb okay now it gets into what see i have no problem saying she shouldn't have the oscar for les mis because i think she should have the oscar for rachel that's where i'm at yeah she should have an oscar for rachel getting married that should be her oscar okay um all right so now it's like what flavor of anne hathaway does the imdb audience crave is it a smaller role in a bigger movie like oceans eight or is it something where she's the lead like um Oh, uh, like that one, that Rebel Wilson movie that she was in recently, but that wasn't super popular. Um, probably not something like Brokeback Mountain. I'm going to guess Ocean's 8. Incorrect. Okay. All right. 
I'm pretty sure Anne Hathaway's has changed over time, too, because I know I've looked her up to do before, and I remember her, me thinking that hers was easier than I think this might be. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, I mean, it's probably not going to be something like Bride Wars. Oh, but the, the Devil Wears Prada, probably, right? No. No way. Okay. <laughs> okay, so your years are 2012, and the other movie, it says 2016, but it was actually released in the States in 2017. Huh. So her other 2012 movie that wasn't Les Mis. Indeed. Did she, like, have a Norbit situation that year? Nope. Okay. Listeners are screaming. Oh, is it something really obvious? Oh, yeah. Huh. Is it, like... Incredibly famous movie. Famous, like, blockbuster. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. oh. She's great in this movie, actually. The Dark Knight Rises. I always forget that that's that yep. year. She is fantastic in that movie. I love her in that movie. In that terrible movie. I don't think it's terrible, but I definitely think she's uh, probably the best thing uh, about it. Absolutely. Um, all right. 2016, but it was released in the States in 2017. Yes. Huh. I like this movie. I love her in this movie. So it's got to be like a festival thing if it was... Yes, its festival premiere was in 2016. All right, 2016. What was at that festival? That was... If you are thinking that it is Toronto, you are correct. You Do you know if I saw it? You weren't at that one. Um, you've definitely seen... I don't know if you saw it at the festival, but you've definitely seen this movie. We've talked about it before. Do I like it? Seemingly a different genre for Anne Hathaway, but this movie's more of like a character study, so like I don't think she's out of place. Okay. Did she get any awards precursor stuff for it? No. Okay. I mean, maybe like one of the like hipster critic groups might have nominated her. Let me look this up. Drama. Mm, no comedy yes i would say a genre dark comedy dark oh 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 colossal it is colossal first of all insane that that's one of her known for good good i love her in that movie i think she's really good she's fantastic but it's so small like i know i know so few people who actually saw it that's crazy good for her Better that than like Good for Alice in Wonderland or something like that. Oh God! Actually, I think maybe that's what it was. Was Alice in Wonderland was on? It's there. such a huge movie, and she got like she was a big part of that promotional push for that movie, even though she's not in it hardly at all. Um, I don't know why I didn't guess initially. Ella Enchanted. I should have knowing that if it shows up on Hugh Dancy, is it might have shown up on hers, but uh, uh, dodged a bullet there. She no. has more lead roles than Ella Enchanted, though. No, I know, but I mean, it's just, it's, it's, uh, uh, I should have, should have thought of it. Anyway, um, yeah, Colossal's a weird movie, but, uh, she's really, really good in it. All right. This was a fun episode. This was a long episode, but it was a very fun episode. So, uh, good on us for that. We got our cats in finally. Cats episode 2021. You asked for it, you got it. 
cats. <laughs> That's the tagline. You asked for it, I guess. Here's it. Here it is. It's here's our cats. All right. If you want more of this head Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Christopher, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me on the Jellicle Ball of Twitter at Crispy File. That's F E I L. Also on Letterbox under the same name. Yeah, I am uh, ascending to the heavy side layer soon enough, but for the moment, I'm at uh, Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R E I D, and on Letterboxd as Joe Reed spelled the exact same way, same way, the same way. Let's say the Jellicle way. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts, now including Spotify. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with the Apple Podcasts visibility. So this is this, and that is that, and that is how how you address a good review for these two cats. So thank you. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz.